There's a song uh, by an artist named Derek Webb. Uh, for the most part, I like his music quite a bit, but um, it's a song called This Too Shall Be Made Right. It's, it's a very interesting song. Uh, it's written very well. It's, it's intense, but he sings these words in it. There is a time for peace. There is a time for war. There's a time to forgive and a time to settle the score. A time for babies to lose their lives. A time for hunger and genocide. And this too shall be made right. And he's correct. He's correct. Because God is still in sovereign control over the world in and over all of its seasons, all of its times, as well as its ending. Our God never stops. He is never absent. He never loses control of the whole world He has made, including everything and everybody in it. In the beginning of chapter 2, if you remember, Solomon talked about testing all the outlets for pleasure the world uh, gives us to see if they would finally give Him meaning. If through that toil to find pleasure, He would be able to find lasting gain. He then considered wisdom and madness and folly and found again that all was vanity and a striving after wind, but also observed that there is nothing better for a person under the sun than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil, for this also is from the hand of God. Chapter 3 begins to shed some light on just precisely why God has ordered things the way that He has. Because... Even though everything under the sun is vanity and a chasing after the wind, God has still designed the world to run with a certain rhythm or with certain rhythms. And wisdom is found in coming to terms with this. God has created time and seasons while also putting eternity in our hearts in order that we may stand in awe of Him. So let's pray and we'll begin. Father, I thank you tonight for your word, for what you revealed to us regarding the truth and life in your son, Jesus Christ, in every book of the Bible. And so, Father, open our hearts tonight, penetrate our minds, Lord, get to the bottom of us through your word. God, for this reason, for that purpose, please be with me. Please overshadow me. Don't let me interrupt your word with myself. Please, God. And help everyone hear and understand. I ask and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We read the first eight verses here of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war. And a time for peace. Let's go back to verse 1 for a moment and get a grasp on just exactly what we're reading here. For everything, there is a season. 
and a time for every matter under heaven. Beloved, ponder that. Ponder that. Think about the implications of such a statement. There is nothing that has ever happened, is happening or will happen, that happens outside the will or the boundaries of God. Nothing. Uh, This statement is only true, verse 1, if God holds absolute control over everything, right? In other words, this can't be said if someone or something else is sovereign. And this means God is so vast, He encompasses everything under His divine appointment. Consider the end for a moment here at the beginning. Listen to verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. In other words, God has appointed every time and season on the earth for everything, and nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. God has done it. Our lives are not timeless. We are limited by time. What Solomon says here is true for every human being under the sun. It applies to everybody. In the covenant community of Israel at that time or outside of it, as believers today or as unbelievers, time limits everyone's choices. Time requires different choices from us all the time. And Solomon is saying to us that the lot we've been given to tend in this world won't flourish unless we pay attention to what time and season we're in. When he uses that word season, he's, he puts our lives within the larger scope of God's whole creation. A season designates a beginning and an end of time in which weather, landscape, climate, creatures uh, experience changes that will mean they have to adjust to certain conditions. Put very simply, very simply, there's a time and a season to wear coats. There's a time and a season to not wear coats, right? We all I think, would understand this. All of life under the sun, however, is like that. All of life. There's a time and a season for everything and for every matter under heaven. Think about the perspective that would give us on the world if we would adhere to that truth in our hearts. We often live as though there are surprises when in actuality there are just seasons, right? An ebb and flow to time that's ordained by our sovereign and faithful God. Because they come from God, if we learn to receive rather than resist these rhythms, we would probably draw nearer to God in our hearts as we're trying to tend the lot that he has given us under those categories. We are not driving our own lives. We learn that here. To live with wisdom is to respond to the season that is presenting itself at a given time. Farmers know this, right? Farmers know this. They um, they may not get up in the morning and feel like planting during planting season. But they don't have the luxury of determining what planting season is, do they? They have to respond to it. If it's planting season, you have to plant. If it's harvesting season, you have to harvest. Surrendering to the season is wisdom and it's divine. right? It's divine. It's honoring to God. It's foolishness to go against it. We will struggle if we are impatient people in a world that's ordered like this, right? We'll struggle. We are not the master of our own fates. We are not the captains of our souls or our destinies. We are always 
under the rule and order of God. We forget sometimes um, in our theology that there are seasons, don't we? Right? Praying or prayer in a season of rejoicing and laughter is very different than prayer or praying in a season of mourning or death. Think about how uh, a new mother would have to adjust her Bible study habits to having a new baby in the house. Not being able to attend all the things she used to does not mean she's slipping spiritually. It doesn't mean she's uncommitted. You see the, the burden we can lay on someone's back. It means she's in a different season in her life. And things just can't be the way they were before. This is time. That's time. And it's a reality in the life of every human being. Rather than so often asking God to show us His will for us, maybe we ought to pray simply to be able to recognize the season that we're in so that we could act accordingly. I, I don't know that Scripture talks about us finding the will of God. That, that's, that's not a notion that comes from Scripture, beloved. I, I would consider that. It, it, in order for a farmer to have what his family needs, uh, he has to learn how to humbly surrender to what the time requires. And when the time requires it, that's set up by God. He's responding to God's rhythm, regardless of how he thinks or feels or desires, right? The planting season comes and goes. Plows don't drive themselves. He, he's, he's got to respond to the season. The times are marked out for us by God. And we learn from him what we need to do to tend our lot as the seasons change. And the preacher, Solomon, in Ecclesiastes, identifies basically... Two kinds of seasons in which we will be tending our lots. What Zach Aswine calls disquiets and delights. Beloved, neither of those things can be avoided. Neither of them. Neither the good seasons or the bad can be avoided. We're going to go in and out of both of them. There is a time under heaven for disquieting things. Difficult things, right? Unpleasant things. Things that can traumatize us wreak havoc on us and our lot that we're trying to tend, a time to die, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to break down, a time to weep, a time to mourn, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to lose, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to be silent, a time for hate, and a time for war. But that's not all there is, is it? There's also a time for delightful things. There's a reason for Hope, or a way to have hope, to have joy in our lots. Also, a time to be born, a time to plant, a time to heal, a time to build up, a time to laugh, a time to dance, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, a time to seek, a time to keep, a time to sow, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time for peace. Solomon tells us that as we sojourn here in this world, under the sun, he's saying, remember that about your times. Remember that this is unavoidable. It is an order set up by God. This is the way life is going to be. Beloved, sit there for a while and ponder that and let it comfort your soul. We worry so much as God's children of being outside His will. I'm telling you, you don't want to think that way. You're in the season God has you in. It, it's, it's set up. It's ordered by Him. Trust Him. Breathe. Right? Children of God, just breathe. Trust Him. Trust Him. Don't, we ought not be so anxious. Right? God doesn't simultaneously tell us through Paul, be anxious for nothing, and then order a world you have to be constantly anxious in. 
Right? That he's not cruel. He's not playing a game or a joke on us. When he says that, there's a reason for that. It's not just like a virtue. Like, despite all that's going on, don't worry. It's don't be anxious because you literally don't have to be. God is ordering your world and the world. Right? Solomon is saying, remember this about your times. Remember this about your life under the sun. There are beginnings and endings. There are things we choose. There are things that happen to us. And we have to respond to them and deal with them. We're going to age. Right? We're, we're, we're going to face realities in human relationships. We're going to face necessities in our work. We'll encounter various moods and actions. All of this awaits us. All of it. So the writer is assuming that a human being would have a full-on emotional capacity, right? He assumes that the same things happen to those who follow the Lord and those who don't. These same things happen to all of us, no matter who you are or what you believe in life. These are the seasons, by and large, that you will face. The Lord is inviting us to engage every season or moment of life that we can experience. What if we could recognize our seasons and recognize the seasons others are in so that we responded to ourselves and to others more appropriately, right? Some of us, um, some, some of these are, are things we'd rather not think about, right? Some of us want to avoid what's disquieting and difficult. Some of us want to avoid what's delightful, right? You, you can reach that point in your life, or maybe if there's some mental issues going on in your mind where you prefer things not to be going well. You, you feel better when you feel sad, which is very ironic, but the human mind is broken, right? But Solomon is preaching to us. He wants to mentor us into a way of being human before God under the sun that's able to honestly recognize what is there and the grace to look to God within it, no matter what it is. He's trying to tell us that. Look, you might be living in a time to kill. That's, that's my time. I'm still your Lord. I'm still your Father. You might be living in a time to die, a time to be born, right? A, t- a time to plant. It just, that's life. That's life. There's part of what Ecclesiastes is telling the believer is, listen, life in the world is like this. And it's basically the same for everybody. Christianity, again, it's, it's not like a, a trick out of the world. You and I are under the sun. Yes, we have eternal life. Yes, we have salvation. But we possess it under the sun. Right, So it's, it's not phonish yet. It's not consummated yet. If that isn't a part of our theology, what we're reading here in Ecclesiastes 3, we'll believe that if we ourselves or someone else experiences one of the disquieting things, for example, that God is singling you out. He's mad at you. He's made an exception or is making an exception of you. He doesn't love you. He's out to get you, Right. Or if we experience one of the delightful things, or somebody does, maybe they're one of the special ones then. Maybe they're just in the click, and God really likes them, and things really go well for them. There are people you know whose lives are very ordered and put together, and they probably have a lot to do with that. Probably. Then you know people whose lives are one mess after the other. And maybe that's their decision too. Maybe that's what they've done. But also, it could be just, your, those are the breaks, right? It's just, life is very hard to... We shouldn't talk so dogmatically about if you do this, it'll go like this. You might do everything right and be in a season to hate or be hated or war, right? It, it, 
Or maybe you, you, you're experiencing one of the delightful things and you're just sure that God is setting you up for a fall, you know, because it's, it's just, some of us just think more negatively than others. I'm not, I'm not really critiquing that tonight. That's not my goal. I'm just saying, that's life. It, it, we can believe that if someone experiences one of the disquieting or the delightful things, that the reason has come from something they did personally to deserve it, to earn it, to bring it on. That's not the biblical way to think. It's not the right way to think about God or His world or our neighbors or our friends and our families. Sure, there are things that happen that are consequences of what you've done directly. There are results of things, natural results of things. But there are also just times and seasons for everything and every matter under the sun. You see how merciful the Lord is being in that statement. And part of the point is you and I just don't know. We don't have the perspective, the vantage point, to know why someone is where they are every time, exhaustively, perfectly. Think about how that's meant to temper the way we treat one another and talk to one another and think about the world. We can just be so... And it's, just, it's, it's not like that. It's just not like that. It's just the way the world is. Sometimes towers fall and people are killed because that's the season. We jump to the conclusion when something like that happens that it has to be specific judgment. It, it could be. It also could be a time to kill. That could be the season. Right? There's a time to be born and a time to kill. They're both part of life in the world. There's a time for peace and there's a time for war. There's a time for war sometimes. There's a time to love and there's a time to hate. That's how massive God is. That's what you're getting a picture of. Just, In other words, we don't have to be so on edge, so anxious, so neurotic, so frantic. Beloved, the same seasons happen in every cycle of man. Right? It's just, it's, it's, that's just the way it is. As a result, if, if, you know, being so anxious, so on edge, we can doubt God and His truth. His relationship with us, because instead of gauging it on the objective reality of who we are in Christ and what God's word says, we're gauging our relationship, our standing with God based on what we're in, what we're experiencing. Everybody's experiencing the ebb and flow of time and seasons. Everybody, whether they're good or bad. We can hurt our family members and friends with our counsel. You know, maybe it's somebody's time to mourn. Don't try to make them stop mourning. What if it's just a time to mourn? Don't get trapped in wanting to make somebody else feel better because it makes you feel better. It, maybe it's not your time to mourn, right? Maybe it's their time to mourn. Leave them be, right? I, mean, I don't mean just abandon them. I mean don't try to pull people into your season, right? Just, just trust that, okay, I'm going to pray for you where the Lord has you. I'm going to try to minister to you where the Lord has you rather than try and pull you out and fix you, right? We can be hurt by others, right? We can get hurt by others. We can receive well-meaning but maybe unloving counsel. That happens. I, I, I know I've, I've talked about my brother's passing a lot. I don't want to overdo that. But I remember the, the, the viewing the night before the funeral. There were two, hour, two sets of two-hour viewings. And maybe it's just the way my mind works. I don't know. But I remember every well-meaning, unkind word that, Everybody said that said something like that. I remember a guy, my, my mom and dad and my, my sister and brother and I were standing in this kind of receiving line. And 
my brother's, you know, casket is there. He was 10 years old. That's, it's, it's, maybe you've been to a funeral where it's a child. It's, it's really just, when the casket's so little, it's just such a... And one guy comes up to my dad and grabs his hand. He says, well, praise the Lord. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I understand that. But... And, and I remember one guy saying to my dad, he was the, the worship leader at our church. He comes up to my dad, he says, and we're all standing there, and he says, you know, it's just selfish for us to mourn. It's just selfish for us to mourn. I know what people mean when they say that. I understand that, that, that for them it's better, right? But not for you and I. It's, it's not selfish to mourn. I mean, I suppose it can be, but beloved, there's a time and a season for that where mourning is the appropriate thing to do. And so it's just, you understand how that can mess with your, your mind, your outlook, your perspective, and all of, all of that kind of thinking results from a lack of recognition of God and His Word. Just be in the season you're in. Don't, God will move the clock, right? God will move things into the next time, into the next season. Solomon is naming what we can expect from this world, just like he's named the pleasures of the world, isn't he? Right? He's a sage. He's preparing us ahead of time for what can happen to us, for what is awaiting us in this world. This has been God's um, mode of operation the whole time. God tells Adam and Eve what they could expect, tells Noah, tells Abraham, tells Moses, tells David. Jesus, the one to whom every prophet and sage points, said things like this a lot. See, I told you beforehand. I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. So as God's spokesman, Solomon has scouted out the land for us, and he's saying, this is what is going to be happening under the sun, so that in the midst of life in this world, we can cry out, even like Job did in the midst of trauma, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my flesh is destroyed, in my flesh I shall see God. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and was sought out as a guest for parties and weddings and eating and drinking and dancing. And he spoke of the explosive joy in heaven when even one sinner repents. And so as we read scripture, purpose, tension, and time, they're all tied up together and God has made it so. God has made it that way. One author says that our lot is like a ship. The seasons are like the wind and the waves. Seasons sometimes put wind in the sails of our lot. Other seasons toss our lot about so that it can seem at times as if our lot is sinking and that we must abandon ship. How do we manage our joy and hope and faith with our food and work and family and relationships when the seasons change? This is part of what Solomon is trying to teach us here. So... To do that, he returns to his great question in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? You see, there's always a context for that question. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. 
nor anything taken from it. Think about the implications of that for our lives. What do we think we can do? God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Solomon has seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, managing time and seasons by their toil. He called it an unhappy business in chapter 1, verse 13. But having looked at the opportunities in the world for pleasure, wisdom, even madness and folly, the times and seasons, he also observes in verse 11 that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, what is beautiful about killing? What is beautiful about hate, for example? We have to go deeper here because the Hebrew word translated as beautiful here carries more the idea of purpose or intention than it does appearance, right? Or or what is appropriate, more than it's about something being ascetically pleasing. So it's not that Solomon means everything has ascetic beauty under the sun. That would be absurd to say, right? There are some things in this world that are very ugly, Appearance-wise, not beautiful. He means that everything has a sense or purpose or initiative on God's part. Everything has its appropriate moment under the sun. So that statement is more for our consolation that everything has a God-ordained purpose, which may serve to comfort us when we're in the hard seasons, the disquieting things. That would resonate with Paul in Romans 8, wouldn't it? How all things are working on behalf of those whom God loves and that nothing whether it's delightful or disquieting, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There isn't one single atom in this universe over which our God is not sovereign, beloved, over which He is not Lord. Everything has its purpose amidst the time and seasons. But here's the thing. This is a kind of a a shocking insertion here. Time is not the only reality. Right. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So that means bound under the sun, we were not just made to live under time. We were designed with the knowledge that time is not all there is. Every human being knows that life doesn't end at death, no matter what they say. That there's more than what we see or experience. God has made us so that we know that. He has made every season with a purpose, but we can't know our future. We, we, we can't exhaustively know what is to come. He's still God. He's still sovereign. He's reserved that right for himself. So eternity in our hearts creates the longing that is behind Ecclesiastes that makes us search for meaning in a world God has also subjected to futility. He tried to not think of that. That's part of what he tested. Madness, folly. Don't comprehend that. Don't give in to the longing that comes from the fact that God has put eternity in your heart. Suppress it. Deny it, even if it makes you crazy. That didn't work either. What God has set up and structured cannot be avoided. You can't get out from under it. We're under the sun. That's where we live. So verses 12 and 13 ring very true, don't they? I perceive that in light of that, right, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful 
and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Yes, in light of what the world is, that's a gift. That's a gift. And I think he's coming back to the simplicity that was in Eden. The sufficient, ongoing joy that was meant to be ours in paradise. Solomon is saying that was good enough the way it was then. Accept that. Embrace it. Return to it as much as you can. God was gifting that to all mankind, not just to believers. And does he not know what is best for us, beloved? Did he not make us? Does he not love us? Now, with all that in mind, consider 14 and 15. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. So that people fear before Him. In other words, what he says here, sorry, I didn't read 15. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. In other words, Nothing is ever lost to God. That's what he's saying at the end of verse 15. He's not unaware of anything that has happened. Right? You, you, you could try to get around him, try to escape him, but he's out there seeking what has been driven away. He, he, there's no escape from his sovereign eye. Beloved, the times and seasons in which we live under the sun are not random. God is active in them. And he has put eternity in our hearts at the same time. So that we're always aware of the fact that we were meant to feel transcended by something. Right? We were meant to feel that way. Again, Ecclesiastes is coming out of a longing Solomon had that nothing in the world had filled. Where does that come from? It comes from God putting eternity in the heart of people bound by time and seasons and limited. Limited people have eternity inside of them. You see, you see the potential for tension there? And for struggling, he's not left mankind to his fate then. God hasn't. He's not left us to the curse. We know enough to long for a Savior. We know enough to long for meaning. That's what times and seasons are for. That's what the rhythm is for that God has set in place that can't be added to or taken away from. For people who have eternity in their hearts when their bodies are bound by time and seasons. That's so that people fear before him. In other words, so that they stand in awe of Him. That's what all of that's about. That's what life is about. That's what the design of life under the sun is about. So that people would come to stand in awe of this God who has made such things. So that we would ask, who are you? I want to know you. How many of you remember um, early 80s, mid 80s when the group, the Imperials, you remember the Imperials, they were... Southern Gospel, and then it kind of morphed over time into contemporary. Russ Taff was the lead singer for them for a while. They have a song on the album, One More Song for You, called the Eagle Song. If you, if you, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful song coming out of this, right? Just, I, I want to know what it means to live. I want to know what it means to... He's, he's watching an eagle fly and pondering, where does life come from? You know, I, I think I told you once when we first started that, Ray LaMontagne song, God Willing and the Creek Don't Rise. The first line is Carolina Mountains, sun sets up in ribbons high. I don't want to get old. I don't ever want to die. 
And I, I, he's not a believer, not, not that I know of, but how did that happen? How does that jump happen in the heart of a pagan? Look how beautiful the sun is. I don't want to die. Right? It's, it's, God has done this. God has made us look and ponder every human being in their souls and think, why? What? How? That's eternity. That, that's God pursuing people. Right? You, you, there's more than this. There's more than this. That's where stories come from. Where, where beautiful fiction comes from. Right? I know Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, but God's behind that. All that beauty of a world that doesn't exist. What makes us do that? It's, we really think evolution and, and things firing randomly at different times created that? That's absurd. Right? And of course we'd create something so foolish to get around Ecclesiastes 3. You've got eternity in your heart. You can't find meaning, so you create the dumbest things for the origin. You, you, it's like you embrace that sense of absurdity rather than, than using it to say, why, why do I long like this? What is it in me that, that God is doing that so that people would, would see Him and say, my goodness, who are you? What are you like? Tell me about yourself. You see how beautiful it is that Jesus came as, a, as, as the God-man, right? So accessible like this. And that's when God's full truth was revealed, when it, when it came by a person in another human being that was under the sun. That's the beauty and blessing of the incarnation. God becoming man and his son. Jesus lives in both places. Under the sun, beyond the sun. He's been to both. He has the inexhaustible comprehension of all reality. That's how, that's what he speaks to us out of. That's why his, his words are the words of life. Of course they are. That they're, in Jesus is the resonance between earth and heaven. Right? Jesus lived as a man under the sun while being God who was sovereign over all of it. Just imagine, imagine when, in other words, go to Jesus, ponder him, absorb him, listen to him. It's just, that's life. That There it is right there. There's the longing. It's, it's him. It's him. God has given us the gift of being able to enjoy the moment, even though we have eternity in our hearts. Solomon says, so Solomon says, in other words, so do that. Enjoy the moments you have. Right? Enjoy the life that you have. Enjoy where you are. If God had not given that gift, nothing could be enjoyed, right? Because we're trapped here. We're trapped here. That's why people without Him can't have joy, can't have hope, can't have peace, because all you know is that you're trapped. Because you have eternity in you and you can't do it, you can't access it life, right? God designed times and seasons and wisdom and madness and folly and pleasure so that we would stand in awe of Him. So that we would finally long for the one thing that will give us gain, will give us meaning. He says later in Acts, in Romans, Paul says there is none who seek after God. The Bible's not contradicting itself. In Acts, however, people are groping. They don't know what they're groping for, but they're groping. That's, it's just, I wish I could, the Bible's so tight, so tightly put together. But that's, that's the meaning of meaninglessness. Okay, that's, that's what it's for. To make us stand in awe of the one who made us so that we might return to him. Him putting eternity in the hearts of people bound by time makes them feel meaningless. 
so that they'll grow for him. The world is engineered to be grasped tightly enough to know it's broken, right? And I'm actually going to go on tonight. I, I, I told June I was going to 1 to 15. That's why it's in the bulletin. But I want to finish this chapter out. It won't take too much longer because I think, um, I think this is actually connected. Look at these next verses. Let me read 16 to 22. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of wickedness or in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, death, right? All are from the dust, and to dust all return. We've heard that before in the Bible. Where where have we heard? Think in your head. Where was that first said? Where were they? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So, in other words, sometimes the seasons will overlap. (laughs) This makes him question justice under the sun as an example of, of what he's the principle he's speaking of here. In other words, even in our courts on earth where there should be justice and righteousness, there's often wickedness, right? Later in chapter 5, he'll say you should guard your heart when you gather for worship because there's folly there also. There's folly in the temple, as Solomon was speaking. The places that are supposed to be safe and righteous and just and pure under the sun, they may not be. They may be corrupted. See how dependent Scripture makes you on God? To, to stay sane. But look in verse 17. He gives the solution to this problem. He tells you what enables him to carry on in the midst of such incomprehensible lunacy. Look at 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. How do you know that? What he already said. There is a time for every matter and for every work. God will preserve justice. God will work it out. That's what Solomon is saying. There may never be justice here. There will always be justice with God. Either sins are paid for by Christ or the offender, the sinner will bear his own guilt. But there will be justice either way. God is in control of this world down to the details of what is both seen and unseen. Every example of injustice in this world, wrongs that have been done to you Dearly loved by God. Wrongs that have been done to you that nobody has seen, that nobody ever gets their just due for, God sees all of it. And either the person that hurt you comes to Christ and he is the one that bore the wrath they deserved, and so it's done and we must trust him, or they will bear their own guilt on the final day. But there will never be injustice, ever. When all is said and done, God is sovereign over all of it. That is how Solomon takes refuge, finds comfort in a world where even justice is perverted. And beloved, we could talk for 20 hours about how perverted justice is even in our culture, in our society. It's, It's almost gone. Then 
that's the season. Then that's the season. It's, it's not apathy, right? It's, it's not apathy, uh, a lack of cons- it's, it's not that. It's recognizing, okay, God, this is where you have us. Be with me. Help me. Help me navigate here. Help me understand because this is the season for this time. Solomon's solution in verse 17 to the problem in verse 16, as he works this out, is he's telling us to end this thought here that speculation then will kill you. That's what he's after here. Early on, he compared us to creation, compared us to each other then, those who will come after us. Now he compares us to the beasts, to animals. We are but beasts, he says. He's not referring to our dignity. That's not what he's talking about here. We know that from verse 19. So in what way is it the same for humans and beasts? What is Solomon saying here? They both die. Right? Neither man nor beast has any gain in terms of death. There's no advantage for humans over the beasts as it relates to dying. He's, he's not talking about dignity or cognition here when he says that we're the same. He's saying all go to the dust in verse 20. And again, Where does that image come from? It comes from Genesis. It comes from the fall in the garden. You are dust and to dust you shall return. Right? That's what I think that's in part, in large part, what Solomon is contemplating here. That's why we talk about Eden so much. It all comes back to Eden and what we lost there. It seems like that's where he always goes in his thinking. That's what we long to recover. That's where everything was well under the sun. And God has created time and seasons while also putting eternity in our hearts in order that we may stand in awe of him. And so notice how he closes down this chapter. Look at 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? I think Solomon is bringing us back to tending our own lots. Because looking at the delights and disquiets we might experience in the beginning of chapter 3 makes us start to speculate about questions we can't answer. Right? Some in Solomon's day, just like now, for example, said that animals don't go to heaven like humans do after they die. Broadly speaking, of course, others said they did. Solomon isn't doubting the afterlife. He clearly believes in one in verse 17. His point is that there are questions for which we don't have the answer. I don't know that. I really don't. I I can speculate on whether or not animals pass into eternal life, but I mean, I don't know. And so this isn't just a random thought. It, It has a function here. His point, again, is that there are questions for which we don't have the answer. And since that's the case, we ought to pursue what is good, And tend the God-given callings and joys of our own lots instead of endlessly speculating about things God has not revealed, God has not made known. How do we know animals go to heaven or not? We don't. So just get back to work. See what he says? Just don't go there. Just get back to work. Live your life. Trust your God in verse 22. There's no way to know what will come after us, he's saying. As opposed to God, by the way, who knows such things, back in verse 15, we are not like that. In the various seasons of our lives, we're going to be tempted to imagine, to think, to speculate, to meditate on, worry about, mull over everything we don't know and can't figure out. 
right? Beloved, sometimes, in fact, most of the time, I, we say, I know we say this, and I, everything happens for a reason. Yes, but you probably won't know it, so don't pursue it. And again, we assume, we, we talked about this in Job, we assume that if we knew the why, we'd feel better. Probably not. Probably not. You think Job would have felt better to find out that what he went through was so that God could prove to Satan how sovereign he is? You think Job would have, oh, okay, that's why I lost my kids. Great. Right? I'm not being disrespectful. I'm saying let's be honest. Right? It's, it's, we, we aren't made to know exhaustively. That, that's not what we're doing here. Beloved, wisdom teaches us that living well under the sun isn't going to be found in endless speculation about what we don't know. There's not something missing that if we knew it or found it would make life under the sun survivable. It's not there. Eternity is in your heart to pull you to the answer, not to the explanation. Everything is fixed by God, but you can't figure it out. And we need to stop trying. The world is not going to yield. It's not going to give us the answers. And he will be there when all is said and done. Remain faithful where you are. God is present there also, beloved. So when you're haunted by the unknown in the season you find yourself, beloved, just do the next thing in the place where you are. Right? Punch the next, the, the next ticket. Take the next road. You know, put on the next cap. Cook the next meal. File the next paper. Then stand still for a while and pray. Then do the next thing and pray. And do the next thing and pray. And then eat and drink and enjoy your family. Notice the sun. Give thanks for its light. Take pleasure in the moment. God is near. God is near to you. At your job. In your house. At your school. You realize this. God is as present in the mundane as he is in the spectacular. It's his world. This is the way in these everyday rhythms that our lives finally begin to resemble, at least in some sense recall what we were made for in Eden. That was just about work that wasn't burdensome and enjoying your family and your wife and your, or your husband. That, that, that was it. As, as it just spread to cover the earth, which was the goal. More often than not, beloved, the way forward is going to be found right where you are. Maybe all of us have had the chance to make the mistake of thinking that somewhere else would be better than where we are. Right? God is so big and so vast. I mean, He's present in your every moment. Don't get caught up in the longing that you'll find meaning if you do something bigger, something more important. Trust that God is Lord and sovereign over the season you're in. No matter what time that season is. Remember this. God has done it. Beloved, Jesus knew the times and seasons, didn't he? Right. I must work while it is day. Right. The darkness is coming when no one can work. Jesus just lived in the time and season where he was. 
He lived each day believing where he was is where the Lord would have him since he knew why he had been sent. God had told him why he was there. So living in that kept him level. He cried sometimes just like you and I. He was abandoned even by his closest friends, just like some of us have been. There was a time to live and a time to die, even for the God-man. It's inescapable here. Jesus became flesh. He submitted himself to the same ebb and flow of the times and seasons as all his children. So lean on him. Lean into Jesus. Press into him. Get to know him. Get to know him. As a Savior who literally knows what it's like to have to live under the sun. He sang. He wept. He gave. He was betrayed. And he died just like you and I will. But in him... The sting of death is no more and never will be again for all his children, regardless of their time and season. He is the fulfillment of the longing for eternity God put in our hearts that we might stand in awe of the salvation he will work to bring us into eternity. Eden was the delight. The fall brought the disquiets to our lives. We will endure them. God is Lord over them all. Over them all. He seeks out what dies. He pursues what ends under the sun, including you and I. And he loves us. He loves you.